notice that this is a re-release of an older episode. That's because I'm kicking off a mini-series on discrimination tasks for our conservation detection dogs. Basically, the question is, how do you keep your dog specific to a given target odor in the presence of other similar target odors or distractors? This topic has always fascinated me. In the world of bomb and drug dogs, it's common to spend a lot of time working on training the dog not to alert to gloves, containers, or other items that co-occur in the training situation, and also work to ensure that the dog is, for example, alerting to an accelerant plus a fuel in the case of a bomb dog or an accelerant dog, not just alerting to, say, gasoline or sugar on their own. However, it's often suggested in the conservation dog world that intentionally introducing your dog to an off-target odor in a lineup situation in order to assure that they're not, say, alerting to red fox scat when you want them to find bobcat scat may later on cause the dog to recognize and alert to that off-target odor in the field. This has always really piqued my curiosity as it's so different from what is taught in many other working dog fields, and I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts and reading books from other folks within the detection dog world, not just within conservation. There's a chance that something's different here, and what we're hoping to do is investigate this from a lot of different angles with a lot of different people. This mini-series will start with today's re-release of an episode on signal detection theory with Dr. Simone Gadbois, which will lay a technical scientific background for um, for signal detection theory. I know it's a, it's a I know it's a dense nerdy one, but I think it's really important for this topic. Next week, we're going to revisit our episode with Paul Bunker about training all clears and other methods for potentially rewarding the dogs in the absence of a target odor. Next up, we've got case studies lined up with Conservation Dogs Collective involving New Zealand mud snails, Conservation Dogs of Northern Ireland involving a really cool moss project. Um, uh, we've got another episode with Paul Bunker of Chiron Canine, and then also going to cover our own past work with Action for Cheetahs in Kenya. I may be able to squeeze another couple episodes in here as well. Um, really just trying to explore the topic of how we keep our dogs specific in the presence of other similar odors, such as species of the same genus. We probably won't quite get to the bottom of this question as things are going to vary based on your actual target, your own training plan, your dog's personality, and so many other things, but we're going to try our best. Without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Simone Gadbois. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week as we discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the absolute joy of talking to Dr. Simone Gadbois about signal detection theory and how it relates to our conservation detection dogs. This conversation is dense and fascinating. And um, if you're someone who, like me, tends to listen to your podcasts at an accelerated speed, I would recommend slowing down for this one, potentially listening to it while you're cooking instead of driving so you can take some notes or pause it to look up a couple things. It is a fascinating, fascinating discussion. I think you're going to really enjoy it, but it is it is dense. Um, so Dr. Gadbois studies olfactory processing in canids and the application of canine scent processing, particularly with wildlife conservation dogs. Um, so he works with Nova Scotian reptiles like northern ribbon snakes and wood turtles. And he also works with dogs used for mi- biomedical detection, diagnosis and assistance for diabetes and anxiety and PTSD. And again, this conversation is so fascinating, and I'm really excited to get to it with you guys. But first, I'm going to remind you that our field vehicle repair fundraiser is still going. As we record, um, the van is finally ready to go, and I am moved into it. Barley, Niffler, and I are ready to start our field season. But repairs were about $4,000 over budget. You can read all about that saga um, over on our Instagram or on canineconservationists.org, where I've kind of kept everyone updated on all of the repairs and the minor nightmare that's been. So any support you can give to the fundraiser is super appreciated. Even if all you do is share the link, I know that money is tight. Um, and you can find that link over in the show notes and canineconservationists.org. Um, and again, if you haven't yet, another way you can help the podcast is to leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. They really make my day, these reviews, and they help other people find the podcast. Um, so welcome to the podcast, uh, Simon. Can you start out with telling us a little bit about your current work up in Nova Scotia at, at Dow? Yes. So uh, I think it's in 2006 we start working with wildlife conservation canines. Uh, it, it, in a sense, something I had been doing since the mid 
early to mid 90s but not like in a formal way um, and then around 2012 I think we start working also on biomedical stuff um, I put glycemia detection in humans but uh, more recently um, anxiety attacks in humans uh, with people with PTSD um, mm -hmm. but I'm kind of moving away from the biomedical stuff mostly because I think electronic noses are going to take over eventually. Um, and I don't think this will happen with the conservation work just because it's field-based and I think dogs will keep a huge advantage there, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I can see how it would be much easier to make an electronic nose for for something in a medical situation versus trying to find something that's self-propelled and waterproof for the field. Well, and, you know, there was a documentary uh, recently. I, uh, actually, I don't know if it's, it was released, but I was, uh, I was asked to comment on a few things they, they had done, and they were showing how... Uh, Humans are a little bit stupid the way they do things, right? So the, the person was asked in, a, in, a, in an arena to, to look for something with one of those devices, right? And it's just, it, it was taking forever. And they released the dog halfway into uh, that five minute, I think, and the dog found uh, the source of the smell within, I think, something like 10 seconds, right? Oh, my so, gosh. So it just, you know, if, if you're... If you're talking about search patterns, about a motor mm -hmm. component to it, about the, you know, looking for something, well, basically what we call trailing um, uh, or air scenting, uh, electronic noses, I think, may eventually get there, but it's way, way, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, probably decades uh, from now. They, they can't even work uh, yet uh, terribly reliably, even if right next to the other source, right? So, and they also yeah. happen to be super super specialized which means that you know if you if you need to look for something different you need to reprogram the whole thing and just anyway right so so yeah i think uh in with field work the dogs will uh will have the uh, the upper paw for a long time yeah well that's good to hear for for job security on my end and i assume <laughs> on yours as well <laughs> i guess yeah, yeah. Um, so our main topic for today is actually kind of signal detection theory and how we can use that for for training our dogs and testing our dogs and fielding our dogs. Um, can we start out with kind of explaining exactly what signal detection theory is? Because for whatever reason, I I think you're the only person I've heard in this field who talks about it. And um, it, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think a lot of our, our scent work people know enough about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I know Nate, Nate and all, uh, did mm -hmm. one talk about it at some point. I actually don't know what he said. I just saw it advertised at some point and, uh -huh. uh, so he, he may, he may be against it. I have no idea, but I, I doubt it. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, I think, I think the reason why we don't hear much about it is because a lot of people that come into this have background in, uh, learning theory. Um, mm -hmm. I, have some of that, but I also had background in psychophysics and um, sensory ecology. And I think I come more from the sensory processing perspective than from the actual learning theory. Um, although, again, I have both in my background. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> so in, in psychophysics, signal detection theory has been around for a long, long time. Green and Sweats is the, uh, the, the seminal paper that kind of started this. Um, it was, uh, you know, something that initially was of huge appeal for engineers. Um, it's kind of an interesting continuation of information theory. And it's about what kind of decisions you make when you're in mm -hmm. uncertainty. And that's really the core of it. Because signal detection theory doesn't work if the conditions are ideal and if it's really easy to one detect and then discriminate between odors then you're wasting your mm -hmm. time trying to use it but when you you work with a, either a challenging stimulus you know a stimulus of low saliency or a very challenging environment where there's a lot of you know turbulence a lot of uh, wind, uh, harsh conditions, uh, really dry, etc., uh, etc., et then suddenly uh, it becomes very, very useful because it tells you what kind of errors the animal does. 
And I think okay. that's really the crucial part of signal detection theory. Um, you know, that, that little paper we wrote on this, which actually was kind of a proceeding for a conference, is way too short. Um, in, <laughs> in fact, we were so constrained by space that it got kind of ridiculous to try to explain everything in, I forget how many pages this was, five pages, not even five pages. Anyway. Um, yeah, it's quite short. Yeah, and there's actually books written on this, right? Uh, so... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Another thing <clears throat> I think that explains why we don't hear much about it in the olfactory work is that signal detection theory has been mostly used for physical stimuli. So mm. auditory stimuli, visual stimuli, tactile a little bit, but chemical okay. stimuli like taste and olfaction, not that much. But there's really no reason why it wouldn't apply. Um, and yeah. I think Bluff, yeah, Bluff may have been the well, actually, I'm not even sure he was talking about olfaction when he discussed signal detection theory in animals. But anyway, yeah, it's it's not very common in the olfactory world. There's no doubt about that. Gotcha. Yeah, so is it sort of like, so for example, where it, it wouldn't be very useful for something that's really clear. So if you were trying to tell the difference between purple and yellow, for example, you wouldn't really need it because there's not a lot of overlap. But if you were trying to decide at what point blue becomes aquamarine becomes green. Is that where signal detection theory starts being useful? Yep, that's one of the examples I give my students, actually, almost exactly okay. the one you just uh, you just gave there. Yeah, if if there's no errors in the data uh, produced mm -hmm. by the by the, the participant, the subject, uh, the dog in our case, well, then it's it's useless because you need those error terms to do the math. <laughs> right? So it's really gotcha. that simple. Uh, so uh, yeah, so it, it assumes that there's some level of difficulty to the task, but if, if not, gotcha. then percentage correct is perfectly fine, but your percentage correct should be then astronomically good, right? So 98%, yeah. 100%, in which case, yeah, yeah. Why, why would you need signal detection theory? It's, it's, that's where it really loses its purpose. Um, so there are cases where with my students, for instance, we start using it, and I'll, I can explain later why I think there's some good uh, reasons why in early training it's it's good to have around uh, but then we eventually abandon it because they say well i can do the calculations i don't have enough error terms here to you know to to get uh even the d prime but certainly not the the the, the bias and then i say well stop then then just use percentage mm -hmm. correct then then you're fine right if the if the dog starts being at 97 and above well okay, actually that depends but typically Typically, mathematically, mm -hmm. you're kind of losing the, the capacity to get something meaningful from signal detection theory data. Gotcha. Yeah, yep. so it has to. you have to have some amount of error. And then we're looking at, you know, whether the dog is more likely to say that something is something when maybe more like errors of commission versus omission, basically. And that's kind of what we're looking at. Right. Well, it's so basically in signal detection theory is what we call the false alarms and the misses. So you need yes. some misses mm -hmm. and you need false alarms. So, uh, you know, false positive, false negatives, essentially what is what gotcha. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an overlap here with diagnostic theory, because a lot of this, in fact, is kind of uh, repackaged in a different terminology in diagnostic theory. Um, which is actually many different theories, but just a way of extracting the kind of mistakes. Uh, so again, f uh, false negative, false positives, and how they they come together in in judging the subject. So, w w what I like about signal detection theory is that it gives you at least two parameters that are really important. Uh, mm -hmm. One is the D prime, which is a measure of either, and that's very important detectability if it's a true detection task or a measure of discriminability if it's a discrimination task okay okay now this is where in the the, the olfactory world we're mixing up all these words and they don't mean anything anymore because in psychophysics it's very specific what they mean in psychophysics detection so when i was talking about detectability is when the subject, human, rat, dog, whatever, just says, yes, it's there, or no, it's not. That's it. Gotcha. Presence, absence, that's it. That's detection, 
right? But as you know, in our industry, in our business, and in the science of it, we say detection for almost anything, including uh, the the search work that dogs do in the field, right? So, but it's mm -hmm. so much more than that at that point, in my opinion, anyway. At, at least based on the yeah. way it's conceptualized in psychophysics. Then the other way to do it is if you have stimulus one and stimulus two. What's the difference between those two, basically? Gotcha. And mm -hmm. that's discriminability. And signal detection theory works here if you have an S1, uh, or I should say maybe an, an S plus and an S minus. When you start having more, uh, more stimuli, like in a lineup or a carousel, that's where signal detection theory starts to fall apart. And then it's just that it doesn't make make very good predictions. You have to do some mathematical adjustments where okay. really the reason to use it is starting to get lost in the complexity of the, the math. Yeah, which is not actually complex, but it's just that then you're really doing an approximation of an approximation of an approximation, and then you really lose the, the purpose of it. So this is why in our tasks, typically we so we use a lot of scintillation vials just what no good reason well it's glass is one of them but in mm -hmm. the field we we collect our samples with this typically from our reptiles and the idea would be that you put this in your device whatever it is we use funnels on the ground but it can be any kind of other arrangement so the scent the target scent is there and the dogs the gets on top of it sniffs it and then uh needs to make a decision. So a real detection task, you would have this, it's either uh, an S minus in this case, there's nothing in it, and I'll just use the one with the cap to ind indicate the S plus. This one has the target sent. So in this case, for us, what the dog would do is simply keep the nose on. It's actually not directly on it, but it's on the, the, the funnel yeah, that we have. Yeah. Kind uh, of a sustained nose touch. Uh, yeah, for five seconds, we, we cut mm -hmm. 1,000, 2,000, so, and that's the dog committing to the answer. It's better in detection tasks, especially for signal detection theory, if you commit the dog to a clear no as well. Okay, so mm -hmm. uh, that's what we call the yes-no procedure. So in this case, yeah. uh, the S minus, the dog would sniff, and then no, it's not it. So we have them typically sit, uh, sit back. So that's their gotcha. way of saying, no, that's not it. Now, there's another way to do it, which is the one that we hint at, and I regret this now, but in that uh, little paper from, forget when, 2015, whatever, 16, I think, um, is to do what we call a go-no-go. -go. So the go mm -hmm. is, again, the commitment, so f the five-second mm -hmm. hold, and the, uh, the no-go is simply just walking away kind of thing. Yeah. The, the problem with the no-go, the just walking away, is that technically it's a little bit potentially ambiguous. So again, mm -hmm. signal detection theory typically likes a clear yes and a clear no. Because otherwise, if you mm -hmm. don't have that, you can always throw some questions about, well, was that really a no? <laughs> right? Of course. Yeah. 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 And, Did the dog perceive it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did they, was the wind just the wrong direction at that moment? So they didn't actually say no. Yeah. They so, just kind of blew past it. Exactly. So, so, yeah. So what, what my students don't like in the lab conditions, now I have to say this is mostly in lab conditions here. So in lab conditions, what they don't like about this is that some dogs that are not used to have a, a no response, you need to train it. Uh, and obviously in the field, you don't want a dog that will always sit back. That's not the point. So, I mean, I think you need to make right. sure that the dog understands that this applies to the testing of where you're at with his scent, mm -hmm. uh, either during the training or in maintenance training later. Okay. Because as you know, you work the field sometimes, and then at some point you, f you figure out what's going on here. Is it, is the dog off or is it, the scent has changed, uh, it, which happens a lot with our reptiles, uh, or is it the field conditions today? Although it's been a week, the scent this dog is, seems to be a little bit off. Like for instance, we find more turtle than the dog does. Uh, then you go like, what, what's going on, right? So that's when you go back to the lab and retest, at least that's what we do, retest the dog to see, yeah, are they starting to look for something else? Have they forgotten what the order, what the order is? You yeah. know, what's, what's going on basically, right? 
So, uh, but let's say this. Technically, you could do the go no go as we say in that in that paper, and it it's fine if you're satisfied with the dog just walking away from the odor as a no. That's fine, but in strict signal detection theory, at least the argument I make now since that paper is that I think it's better if the dog can commit commit to a no, like right. Except that mm -hmm. again, if it interferes with the the field. Uh, right. where a dog constantly sits back to say, well, there's no turtle here. Uh, well, okay, then I understand it's it's problematic. But most dogs will learn very quickly, you know, okay, what, what Yeah, I'm the difference to... between lab and field. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, it seems like it's been pretty obvious to most of the dogs that I've asked to do both. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously we don't want a dog, especially, I mean, gosh, I'm trying to imagine like doing a plant survey where like the dog's like, not this one, not this one, not this one. You're never going to get anywhere. Uh, but, exactly. Um, it, it would take forever, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, it would take, it would take days to clear like a 10 meter plot. Yeah. Um, but okay so so then basically so signal detection theory is kind of a way for us to get an idea of whether our dogs are you know false positives or false negatives or you know misses versus what did you call uh false alarms. when they kind of false alarms yeah misses and false alarms um and this is something that we would want to do you know maybe prior to fielding to kind of make sure that we we understand where our dog's at and potentially to troubleshoot afterwards is that Am I am I following? <laughs> well, well, so the concept we, we I think we need to add here is the the concept uh -huh. of the of the bias, because uh -huh. that's where signal detection theory, in my opinion, shines. Is that it will tell you what kind of dog you have, and mm -hmm. in other mm -hmm. words, if it's a liberal decision maker or a conservative decision maker. So that's a lot of different things. It can be temperament as a dimension of personality, it can be the training, it can be mm -hmm. uh, the reinforcement history, it can be mm -hmm. all kinds of things that get a dog one way or the other. So that's very important because, as you know, in some areas, you want extremely conservative, conservative dogs as opposed to liberal. So the typical example I give my, my students is mind detection, right? Yeah. In, in mind detection, you'd rather have a dog that does a lot of false alarms because the cost yeah. of a miss is that the dog and potentially yourself just blow up on the mind. At the right. same time, there's other examples where we, we had a contract, for instance, with the Canadian um, Forest Service. The problem they had in that case was with larvae of a specific insect um, that was damaging trees. And the method they were using at the time was producing a lot of false alarms. So basically the problem they had there is that they were cutting and destroying more trees than needed. So they would mm -hmm. put down trees, chopping them down, and then realize, darn, there was actually nothing here. So yeah. or the lumber industry, that's actually a potential loss you know, that accumulates with time and becomes right. a problem. So what they wanted actually in this case were a lot more conservative dogs. Uh, sorry, a lot more, uh, there you go, I'm going to mix myself up here. They, they, they didn't want dogs that were doing a lot of, uh, yeah, more conservative. False alarms. They, yeah. So yeah. please stop doing false alarms. Just tell us only when you're really, really sure there's something, then, then tell us basically. So that's yeah. a dog that when unsure is more likely to say no than yes. That's a conservative yeah. dog. And a liberal dog says more yes than no basically when, mm -hmm. when unsure. But the beauty of this is that knowing that it's partly the dog, so every dog will have, uh, well, not actually, some, some don't actually have a bias. Uh, one of my best dogs, Zila, for instance, Zila was what we call the ideal observer. She was right smack in the middle. She was doing about equal amount of uh, misses and false alarms. In some cases, that's, that's exactly what you want. Um, yeah. But many dogs will fall on one side or the other. Uh, of of this bias. So they're either too liberal, or I should say liberal or conservative, and in some cases, extremely liberal and extremely conservative. So mm -hmm. again, sometimes that works for you, sometimes it doesn't. But the beauty of this is that technically, via training, you can change this. So if you have a dog that you find a bit too conservative, you want that dog to be a little bit more liberal, it's easy, actually, in the field. What you would do typically is when the dog sniffs and seems to be hesitating, and especially if you know that the target happens to be there, you would immediately say, good dog, 
click or, you know, here's the kibble or whatever you do to reinforce your dog. Now that's a dog that learns that, okay, if I think it's it, maybe it's it. And I should say it is it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the, the, the other pattern where uh, you may want to really withhold any kind of reinforcement if the dog is showing uncertainty. So in wildlife conservation canines, at least for us, as you know, we have a bit of an issue when a dog gets to a scent um, and the target is not there, right? This is the, the typical problem that happens a lot to us. And we have to make decisions what's good for us in that case, right? For us, right. I, I have a tendency to say, uh, to give the dog a benefit of the doubt, especially if in the context it makes sense. And usually with wood turtles, for instance, that's one of our primary um, research subject, they often leave a, a, a some kind of mark on or sign on the ground that helped me decide, yeah, you're right. There was a turtle there this morning, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so then I tend to be a little bit more generous with my dogs because I don't mind most of the time that them being a little bit on the side of false alarms, meaning being liberal. Mm -hmm. And we actually gather this data as a data point. There was a turtle here this morning or yesterday or whatever. So that becomes yeah, a GPS. Recently. Yeah, recently at some point. Um, but I could see why some people would like to see, well, you know, if there's nothing there, I'm not interested in this. Find me the target. In which case, obviously, yeah. then you, you want a dog that will just give a strong answer or response only when the target is actually present or extremely close um, or recent, right, in time. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about some of the scat projects I've worked on where, you know, we actually need there to be enough scat there that we're able to collect um, data to send to the lab. So generally, if the dog is alerting to something that, you know, there was a scat there that's now been largely eaten or something like that, um, mm -hmm. that's not generally something we really want the dog to be focusing on. Um, or yeah, if the dog is alerting to, uh, I was out once with a dog that found uh, a site where a puma had cached. Um, there was like a dead sloth and a dead armadillo in an area, but there was no scat, but it reeked of cat. Um, and I can't remember, I was just shadowing a handler at that point. I can't remember whether or not they decided to to reward or not. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's like the dog was absolutely correct. Like we could smell and it was clearly a, a cache, but there was no scat there to actually collect. So depending on, you know, your who your funders are and what the goal of your project is, you may or may not decide to reward. Um, so, so then as far as, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and it's interesting because this is one of those cases where uh, having a dog that is tolerant of being on intermittent reinforcement is important, right? Yes. Because those situations, and this is where a lot of dog trainers these days don't understand. Uh, there's a lot of people, again, intermittent reinforcement, but the thing is, that's just such a great example of a situation where if the dog has not experienced intermittent reinforcement before, they will indeed get frustrated and stop working or right. So, I mean, it's a great case mm -hmm. where, yeah, it, it's a little bit of a, I was going to say negotiation, but that's not really the word. Uh, but, but there's a kind of like implicit understanding that you need to develop between you and the dog that, yeah, I know you're not too sure, but I, I know something is there. Yeah, we agree something is happening. And then you, <laughs> you yeah. reinforce or, or you don't, but you, you don't let the dog hanging too, too much either. I mean, it's, this is exactly where a dog, and I've seen this in the field, will fall one side or the other of what we call the ideal observer in signal detection theory. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it, it's really where you technically control it in the field. It's like in those moments where the dog's not sure, you're not sure, but well, okay, I do smell the cougar here. So yeah, okay, no, you're right, right? But what do I do? What's the goal of the study too? What 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 uh, what do mm -hmm. the stakeholder actually want? They want to scat, so it's not here. What do I <laughs> right? right? But, but yeah. the cost of this depends a lot on the cost of your false alarms. If there's really mm -hmm. no cost in the, the dog giving you that false alarm, just I say reinforce, right? I mean, you want yeah. after all the dog to find, you know, cougar scats in this case, so go for it. Just reinforce it. Um, yeah. We're, Worst case scenario, you you hit a few spots where there's nothing, but it it's better yeah, that well, probably <laughs> than missing it. 
Yeah, and as kind of a nerdy naturalist, I'm I was pretty excited to find a, a a dead sloth and armadillo. Like, I don't mind if my dog tells me about that. Um, yeah, as long as it's not something that's so frequent that it's going to slow down your searches. Um, and I think the example, you know, in the field for conservation dog handlers that is really problematic. And I I think this is again where signal detection theory, like understanding what errors your dog is likely to make is probably at its most important is, you know, the example we use a lot in North America is if you've got a dog that you're trying to find bobcat scat and red fox scat is pretty difficult to distinguish visually from red from bobcat scat kind of you know at the, at the extremes there you can tell them apart. But um as a handler it can be challenging if your dog is starting to alert to stuff where you're just like, well, I'm not really sure if that's Bobcat or Red Fox. And there are enough Red Foxes where it would be problematic as far as lab fees and just survey time for your dog to be finding every Red Fox when you're trying to find Bobcat. So I'm guessing that is where really understanding the sort of errors your dog is likely to be making would be incredibly important. Uh, yes. And again, and again, brings to, to me, at least, the importance of a dog that does not always expect, uh, you know, uh, nothing is free in life, you know, that principle doesn't always expect a reinforcement when gets the target, because, because then again, you then you're creating an extremely conservative dog, which is may not be what what you want. The the other dimension of this, I think that's, uh, that becomes important, I guess, is, um, I think, you are allowed also to grade the uh, the way you respond to uh, to a good or potentially good response, right? So, mm -hmm. I think when we have a target in the fields, the dog gets right to the turtle. I mean, we give a huge party. Hey, good dog, click kibble. Although honestly, our dogs don't care about kibbles at that point are so excited and so self-reinforced in the field that they, <laughs> they often don't pay attention to that at all. Uh, but I think contrasting that response to, yeah, good dog, right? It's totally fine. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, they get the point that, yeah, sometimes you get really excited. This is when we find the mm -hmm. actual turtle. It's right there. Yay. Versus, yeah, you're still supporting me, but yeah, yeah, that was not exactly. yeah, exactly, exactly. But you, it's crazy the number of trainers that don't seem to understand that concept, that it's okay. It's not, you know, this obsession with the clicker that it's always the same intensity, the same response, the same saliency. No, why not being able to grade this in terms of, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's a B plus versus a, an A plus. Great, great comparison. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. When we use, like with my dogs, they have different marker signals. Um, so I, I don't usually use a clicker in the field because I'm not going to, I don't walk around with, with my finger on the button. Um, so I, I yeah, we use. We don't, people don't understand we don't have free hands in the field, right? So just, <laughs> no, yeah. no, I'm usually using them to keep myself upright. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah, pull, pull ticks out of my hair or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, we use, you know, we've got catch and tug, which, you know, one's for a thrown toy, one's for tugging. Um, my dogs have different, one, one of my dogs tug is better than, than throw and the other is the other way around. And then both of them also have a, a yes or a find it, which are both for either food delivered to their mouth or food delivered on the ground. And I can do, you know, for both of them, food is less exciting than toys. So if I'm not totally sure, but I think there's a good chance they're right. Yeah. I can grade my response to them. And then if I'm really like, I'm really not sure. I really, I, I, I don't think this is it. Then I, they might just get some like kind of casual verbal praise. We'll take a water break and then we'll keep going. Yep. Um, and yeah, we can really grade our responses. And yeah, it is it is really surprising to me that kind of in in this field, how how resistant people are to that. And maybe this is something that at some point, someone you need to, <laughs> to do a paper on kind of showing that like, no, we can, we can give like a less, a less exciting reward without I, I, and I think most people are more concerned about false alerts or false alarms than they are about misses. But but maybe maybe that's not quite accurate. Well, you know, and I think there's also Casey Cover that that has this interesting idea of informing the dog if the dog is. Uh, uh, I think she calls it hot, hot or cold, right? When when you actually mm. know about the 
condition. So it's a controlled condition, most likely in the lab or, or set up in the field. And I think that's very useful too, but you would be surprised again, how many trainers are totally against this idea. It's like, and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. but why, why, why not tell them you're close, but not exactly it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and she, and she does it with this, uh, sound. I'm not sure I would agree with that, that sound in particular, but it's six, six, six or something like that. Yeah. And then she grades that and faster, uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, louder, I think something like that. And then down, up and down. And, uh, I Interesting. Guess, yeah. And I think that's a great yeah. idea. I, I do it with my voice. I think, you know, I mean, uh -huh. canids are intrinsically, uh, very attuned to vocalizations and, and totally. what, do you mean? Yeah. what we, what we call the prosody in, um, in human language. And I think it's very important to use and you can modulate it. So if you're uncertain, you let the dog know that you are uncertain. Yeah, I think so. Good dog. Right. And it's like, yeah. yay, good dog. I mean, it's eventually they, they go like, okay, we understand each other. We're not sure about this. Right. Totally. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I think this is like Patricia McConnell's entire PhD work was all about how, I mean, not just on this topic, but on how how responsive many of our domestic animals are to consistent changes in in our um, in our vocalization. And I know um, my so I grew up with the, just this beautiful Labrador Retriever that I I so wish I could own again today because she would have just been the perfect working dog. Um, and we taught her when we, you know, when we threw her tennis ball, we had a big chuck it and we lived on 40 acres. So we'd, lo we'd lose those tennis balls out in the, the 40 acre fields all the time. And my dad and I taught her that if, if she was at least orienting towards where we thought the ball had last gone, we would kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and get louder and, um, and then go quiet again if she, if she circled away from it. And, you know, this is just a lab playing fetch in the backyard, but, um, it worked really well. I haven't done it um, with my search dogs as much, but, but that would be an interesting thing to play around with. Yeah, and especially in early training or when transferring the dog to a new smell, a new scent, right? I think it's, it's totally justified. Just like, yeah, guide them a little bit. Do the coaching. The, the mm -hmm. same way we would uh, in any kind of other kind of training or learning with, with our children. <laughs> like, yep, totally. you're getting there, right? As yeah, opposed to yeah. Just I mean, actually with... And, with my with my puppy um who's he's about seven months old now and he's getting ready to deploy on his first project um as i was so he um in the last month i've noticed he's really good at actually going out and finding the target right now we're working on dead bats um and i'm trying to build in an actual alert for him because he was going up finding the bat and then running back to me for a reward which could be an alert um that would be just fine um i know that's what a lot of search and rescue people do but I would prefer to have a dog who stays at target and alerts to it. Um, so in that case, you know, I was reinforcing him a little bit for coming back to me and then guiding him back to it and coaching him into that alert a little bit in a way that I would imagine makes some detection trainers cringe. Because it's funny how I think like the, the, the industry has swung from be like if you think of like your traditional kind of narcotics vehicle search where you're presenting everything to the dog and you're right up the dog's nose um and now i think we've swung in a lot of places the opposite direction where you know we want the dog to pretend we don't exist and we want to be so thoroughly disengaged from the search which is certainly valuable and it's a cool skill for your dog to be able to have to search independently but that doesn't mean that we have to do a hundred percent of either one of them all the time I, I think it depends on the dog. It depends on, you know, so many a situation. I mean, I think we're sometimes just a little bit afraid to be versatile, right? Versatility, I think, is important <laughs> for it. Like, like a dog that yeah. can adapt to new situations. Like, look, I've I've had dogs. This, well, you probably experienced this too. Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often, but are fantastic in training in the lab. But as soon as we get into the field. It, it's it's they're not connecting the dots in fact i've had two that never did uh, and i don't know if it's because they just don't like the field they don't like to work in the field they're just like well, i like the lab part that's fun whatever but, <laughs> yeah. and other dogs uh the other extreme of this is a dog that i brought once um uh flynn to the field and uh he watched it was his first time to the field he watched zila work and an hour later, he was finding more turtles than Zila. And he had oh my gosh. no training whatsoever, none, zero, absolutely nothing. And he became our turtle dog. He was, until he died this yeah. February, he was our best dog by far. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, dogs are amazing. But you need flexibility, and I think you need 
you need you need to see it and uh, what i don't like about the this industry sometimes is it seems we're not you know we're so obsessed with protocols this is why how you do it it's, it's so rigid and every dog must go through the same procedure look we're not working with rats and skinner boxes here let's <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it, we're working with a much more socially engaged species with humans and let's just take advantage of it right and uh, mm -hmm. yeah 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 absolutely mm -hmm. Hey everyone, just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones kind of participates fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback back on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers, plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month, and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification, and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. So let's, can we circle back a little bit more to yep. signal detection theory? And I wanted to talk about like what the problems are with like proportion or percentage correct as like our, our performance metric. Um, because I know we alluded to that earlier on, but you know, why don't, we like the idea of just saying, all right, we did a bunch of lineups. That's kind of our lab pre-training. Um, now we're going to see what proportion the dog gets correct. And then, and then we know the dog is ready to field or not. Um, what is kind of the problem with that setup? And we can talk about it both from the proportion correct side and the, and the lineup side. Cause I know we've got things to say on both ends of yeah. that. <laughs> well, so technically there's no problem with proportion correct. Uh, the, mm -hmm. Even if you do the, the single presentation or the, what we call two AFC, right? A choice between mm -hmm. two or three or four or six, and that becomes like, you know, the lineup kind of uh, uh, procedure. So th there's nothing wrong with it. That's, you know, and you do a pineal test and you figure out, you know, if they're above chance or not, that's great. But again, in signal detection theory, if you go with that thinking, you get more, you get a lot more data on well, this, this bias or this criterion, as we call it in signal detection theory. And you get that D prime value, which again is not terribly intuitive. You have to spend a little bit of time looking mm -hmm. at what it means because a lot of people think it's a linear uh, measure and it's not. So uh, often textbooks will tell you it's between zero and four, which is not exactly true. It can be above four. Uh, so two is half. So two is 2%. No, two is actually much better than two, uh, sorry, 50%. Two is much more much better than 50%. So anyway, you, you need okay. to get familiar with the measure, essentially. So yeah. you get the D prime, you get the criterion, there's different type of criteria and different ways of calculating it and all that. There's even a non-parametric version, by the way, of signal detection theory. It's called the A prime instead of D prime, blah, 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 blah. So the whole mathematics <laughs> of it. Um, so this, it, I think signal detection theory from that perspective is just from a quantitative tool that gives you more information about where your uh, your dog is at. Um, assuming mm -hmm. you're interested in that, right? Some people may not be. For diagnostic, it's very important, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But most biomedical research will just report specificity and sensitivity, which is fine. 
but it's related to all of this, right? Uh, specificity yeah. is really about actually how conservative the dog is in the sense that it is, is the dog able to differentiate this stimulus from others as opposed to sensitivity, which is that stimulus itself, how detectable is it? So the, the are there complementary measures? And in most of okay. the calculations that we have, you know, accuracy is actually the average of specificity and sensitivity. Yeah. So if you have 90% uh, accuracy, you may actually have 95% uh, sensitivity and uh, what did I say? Yeah, 85% specificity, all right, or reverse. Okay. Gotcha. There's a reason why I'm going there, by the way, mentioning specificity yeah, yeah. here. So the problem now, uh, in terms of the task, with the lineup, is that it's, it is, in psychophysics, intrinsically known as being a specificity task, because it's the one S+, plus, right, the target, in terms of how discriminable, not detectable, discriminable it is from others. So mm -hmm. that, that is really what you're doing. So you're biasing a dog towards being very good at specificity. And this is why most of those studies have a higher specificity than sensitivity. It, there are some gotcha. exceptions, but a lot of the diagnostic work, do, uh, work with dogs, they have very high specificity and lower sensitivity. And that's because you set them up for this. So think about mm -hmm. it. The dog walks into the room. Now, if you do it like Schoon, uh, Schoon, sorry, Schoon and, and uh, Hawk did, um, you know, there's a percentage. Let's say that you have 10 trials in a session. You would have probably one out of 10 trial where the lineup is blank. So you have the opportunity to get, sorry, so the dogs has the opportunity to say there's nothing here, right? Because otherwise the dog will think, anytime I walk into this room, this room in front of the lineup, there is a response, an answer. It's not true, it's yeah. not true. And you, it, there you really biasing your dog to always alert to something when actually it's possible there's nothing. Okay, so typically about 10% of your trials would be uh, a blank lineup. The other 10% that is important to add, in my opinion, and that's uh, Skrin and Hawk make that point, is a lineup where there's actually two targets. And mm -hmm. the argument they make there is that often dogs will run the lineup, and as soon as they find a target, they stop. And especially in the kind of forensic work that Skrin and Hawk were doing at the time, or Shern, sorry, I never know how to pronounce her name, um, what you actually want the dog to do is be able to complete the lineup just in case this is not really the target or there's a better target right in other words there's a scent that smells more like the um the you know the, the target scent than than this one mm -hmm. so that's something we discussed in gabor and reeve 2014 this idea that you have 10 percent blank lineup 10 percent two targets and then the rest is one target but you're still setting up the dog entering the room to think that most of the time there will be a target in there when the reality of the field nope actually Not in the field so a lot of the yeah. time you can spend a full day looking for especially in the kind of work we do with endangered species or species at risk uh, yeah by definition they're not out there much um so that is potentially a problem or for some dogs it will be again bringing <clears throat> again this idea that if your dog is used to reinforce it, it may be actually not just important but it essential because in the field they may deal with what we call rare events right and we know from human studies that even with humans, even if in humans know this, that they're looking for rare events. The example I often give here is the NSA example, right? Uh, Jeremy Wolf, a former uh, postdoc here at Dalhousie University um, in cognitive psychology, figured out that actually one way to keep NSA agents uh, alert during and motivated during their work, when they look at all these luggages going in front of them, 
uh, is to actually have the uh, computer uh, engage them into basically what is kind of a video game. In other words, uh, the system plants weapons and explosives in there, and mm -hmm. the person does a strict detection task. Yes? No? Yes? No? Now, if you say yes, uh, and uh, you know the system just planted a grenade, well, good, say yay, but oh, by the way, this was just part of the game. But if the person says yes, and the system goes, uh, wait a minute, there was no grenade in there that was planted. So yeah, you better check that luggage, right? And that simply keeps the person interested. So what's interesting about the kind of work we do is that we are asking our dogs to perform in rare event situations. It's the same, mm -hmm. it's the same with dogs that do, um, that do work uh, for, let's say, apoglycemia detection. Apoglycemic events in kids, uh, nocturnal apoglycemia may occur once a month. Um, and mm -hmm. then people realize that dogs have stopped working after a while because they, they never get the event. They never get to be reinforced for it, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so that, yeah. that's why it's kind of problematic. So what we're saying basically is the, the, the lineup kind of sets the dog up for knowing as soon as they get in the room, there's a target somewhere in there when actually real, the real world is not like that. This is why detection tasks are different. When the dog gets in the room, there is a, a container with or without the S plus in there. And again, says yes or no. And you can adjust also what's interesting, the occurrence of a yes to something that matches pretty closely what's hap actually happening in the field. Just to make sure that your dog is not too sensitive to that expectation that 50% of the time there'll be something there versus only 10% of the time. But in a lineup, intrinsically, the dog knows. It's more like, a, you see, it's not a detection task. It becomes a discrimination task. It's yeah. more about comparing this to this. But the real world of a search dog is not this or this. Well, occasionally it can be, like the work we did with snakes. Um, we were looking for ribbon snakes, but sometimes you would find uh, garter snakes, which are from the same genus and most likely have the same odor. But a lot of the time, it's not that. It's literally, is it there Can you or not? find this? Yeah. Can, you, can you find this? And yeah, you don't have a comparison. So the way I explain this to my students, I say it's the same uh, as a difference between a multiple choice exam versus a true-false. So in a multiple mm -hmm. choice exam, some people say it's easier because you, you actually can compare and contrast A to B, A to C, A to D, etc. Some people say, well, it can be harder because then you confuse the animal more with possibilities that are very close to the target. True. But again, right. it depends on the multiple choice test, on the question. So it depends on your lineup, essentially. Yeah. It, is a true-false easier? where I experimented this with my students with final exams. I can tell you it's not necessarily easier. Uh, to give mm -hmm. a real good true-false answer to a true-false exam uh, is not as straightforward as students uh, actually would predict if you were just to ask them, is it easier? So uh, I can tell you that the score on full true-false exams I have done with my, my students, final exams, are about the same as with a multiple choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, despite the fact that they say, oh, this is going to be easy, it's a true-false exam. Yeah, well, it depends on the statement you make, right? So again, it depends on the stimulus that is given to you. So uh, now remembering that true-false is better if you want to use signal detection theory than if uh, you have a lineup or a multiple choice. Now, like I said, the books that I have, uh, for instance, this, this one, this classic one here, that's one of the best out there. <coughs> There's also that little one here. It's a little bit more condensed. Um, uh, in these two books, they will tell you that you can actually have a two AFC, so a two alternative force choice or three alternative force choice, etc., uh, with an applying signal detection theory. But like I said earlier, the problem is, let's say you have a regular lineup of six items. That's a six AFC, and technically, what you have to do is a well you lose the predict predictability of the model. The model becomes a lot more speculative 
and mm -hmm. is not as good, not as we would say in stats, not as robust. So okay. um, it's doable, but it's not advisable. And you're really kind of guessing um, what's going on if you try to to apply um, sound detection theory to uh, um, uh, yeah, but you have to do basically the the square root if it's a two way FC, <laughs> oh, gosh. the the square root of of d prime basically. So with six AFC, it's you can see how it gets a bit ridiculous at some point. You get really strange low numbers that are kind of meaningless. So that's why okay. it's not advisable to do it with with a lineup. Again, theoretically you can, but it's most people avoid doing it. Yeah. So for people at home who are kind of interested in trying this out with their own dogs or, um, you know, whether they're scent work competitive trainers or, or more on the conservation dog side of things, is there, are there good places to go as far as finding these formulas and learning how to set up these, these choices for their dogs so that people can actually get a good idea on um, where their dogs fall? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, yes, there are a few resources, including online, actually, that you can find. There's one actually from Memorial University um, here in Canada that, that's a little uh, JavaScript uh, app that I've been using, actually, uh, with my students when they want to calculate their D-prime. Uh, those books I just showed, although they get really uh -huh. technical, uh, but it doesn't have to be that technical. Uh, uh, I know there's spreadsheets out there that are used by, by people to do quick calculations. But here's the thing is, um, the basic thing that you need is this, this quadrant. Um, mm -hmm. if I could easily, sh no, I can share my, my screen here, but I would show you what it looks like. But the quadrant basically is that you need, you need to be able to fill a matrix, mm -hmm. uh, based on, uh, four scenarios. That will give you the the hit, the false alarm, the uh, the miss, and a correct rejection. So, mm -hmm. in other terms, uh, true negative, true positive, false negative, false positive. Yeah. So that means that in your setup, you need the situation where the stimulus is there and the dog can say it's there. That's a hit, or a true positive. The stimulus is there. Um, but the dog says it's not, that's a miss, right? And, and you, you, so you get the point. So basically, mm -hmm. and yeah. you just need to be able to put numbers in all those four, uh, in that, well, in that quadrant, basically in that matrix of, of four, uh, four cells. And to calculate the D prime, really all you need is hits and false alarms. And there's a little formula, um, uh, well, it, it's it, you need to do the Z scores. You need a little bit of stats to be able to do this. But again, okay. the, the, yeah. like the, the the app that I was talking about earlier, you can just plug in the mm -hmm. proportion, the numbers, and there oh, they will work for you. Right? Uh, I can yeah. send you the link. I can send you the link later. That would be great. Yeah, and we'll yeah. share the links to that. And you know, Sharon and Hawk and Gabo and Reeve and the the two books that you showed. We'll have all those links in the show notes for people, yeah. so, so people don't to, have to panic about trying to track it down themselves. Yeah. Uh, and just to go back to the lineup thing, you know, the, uh -huh. the, 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 there's actually, to complete your question, really, outside of signal detection theory here, because I didn't go there, but very quickly, it's just to make the comment that in Gadboy and Reef 2014, one of the arguments that we made, especially if you do a matching to sample task, uh, and I think Lazarovsky and somebody else recently published on this, but uh, is that uh, we demonstrated with two of our uh, top dogs at the time that potentially there is a working memory issue in a um, in a lineup in other words mm -hmm. what, what we're saying is that the dog has a very high uh, accuracy early in the lineup so in the first items that it samples and th that accuracy goes down uh, as you go down the lineup basically so we showed that basically after the third item in a lineup or carousel, whatever, then really the, the dog doesn't know. Now, this is in matching to sample, meaning that every time the dog mm. enters the room, the the target sample may be different, right? So you're working yeah. with different orders to, to start with. 
But what we didn't explain in that paper, uh, and, and the, the other one that you were talking about, is that there is still with lineup the issue of sensory interference. So the first one is working memory, but even if it's only one odor or the contrast between, let's say, two odors or yes or no, or a urine, a urine sample that may or may not be containing uh, a, a marker for cancer, let's say. The problem is that as the dog samples from one station to the other, there is actually sensory interference. First of all, sensory memory. Mm -hmm. What did I just sample there? You know, previous one, next one, etc. Not to mention all the molecules from the previous sample that are now mixed in the nasal cavity of the dog. So yeah. there's, there's still an issue here in terms of how you space this out, like literally physically and temporarily. And that's why, again, the detection task is better because a detection task, the, the dog enters the room, there's one sample, sniffs it, yes or no, that's it. Just, yeah. is, it, is it cancer? Is it not? Point. It, yeah. Yeah, no comparison, no, no possibility of mixing up all of these orders and, and then giving um, the, the wrong answer, essentially. So that's the other dimension of it, is that there's literally mnemonic, meaning memory interference, but also sensory interference when you do lineups, um, especially the way they tend to be done. You see, I see often these dogs doing lineups or carousels, the wheels, they're literally running around it. And I'm thinking, wow, in terms of sensory sampling, this is really like... It, it, good if they can do it and if they can be accurate but imagine if the odors were really close you know between yeah. an s plus and an s minus or really of low low saliency there mm -hmm. suddenly you, you you get this threshold of error that's totally totally different right just uh, yeah i mean i'm imagining trying to find like if if you blindfolded me and set me loose in the the fruit aisle of a grocery store and had me find the citruses i could do that pretty easily i would imagine but if you started having me try to tell the difference between lemons and limes i'm not sure i could do that by scent um yeah especially if i was if i was <laughs> running through the grocery store <laughs> trying to do that yeah yeah that that makes sense there's another analogy I, I often give my students, especially for the working uh -huh. memory part, right? When you do the matching to sample. So if you give at the door an order, you say, okay, this is lavender. And now there's a lineup of other essential oil or whatever smells and go find a lavender one. Um, we've seen dogs sometimes that going like, yeah, it's lavender. It's very strong. Obviously, this is obvious. But halfway through the lineup, they look at you. It's like, uh, and you can tell they go like, what was it again? And here's the here's the comparison, it, especially if your exemplars, so your potential target odors is is large, uh, like eight, ten, or more. And I think the analogy is this: it's uh, it's a student of mine that once said, "Okay, it's a little bit like when I'm at home and I change the water in my aquaria, and I know that when I get." Uh, new water in my aquarium, I need to match the temperature, otherwise my tropical fish will actually die. So if I put my hand in the initial aquarium, and then in a second one, I can tell easily it's the same temperature or not the same. And then I go to the third aquarium, I may remember what, you know, the, the first aquarium was like, then the fourth, then the, you know, as you go down, after a while, you mm -hmm. go like, wait a minute, what's, what was the first one again? And then you have to go and resample, right? The, yeah. the initial mm -hmm. aquarium to actually match and do that accurate comparison. So in other words, I think with, with sensory information, uh, when the target smell can be different every trial, let's say, or every session, I should say, sorry. Uh, I think it's important to remember that they have a limited capacity at the sensory and mnemonic level to process stuff. Um, now, if the dog is allowed to resample, great. Um, and again, I think in the kind of work we do, it's not that important. Usually I make that point more so with the biomedical detection dogs that may actually right. do different kind of diagnostic in the same day, um, where it's really important to remind them, you know, wh what are you working on today kind of thing, or even right. this, this session or this trial, what is, what, what is it about? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, I think we need to wrap up here. Did you have anything else that you wanted to kind of circle back to or, or revisit as we're wrapping up? I, 
But if you're happy with this, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think this is going to set a lot of people's heads spinning, but hopefully in a good way. I know I've I've enjoyed this and uh, <laughs> definitely one that I normally listen to my podcast at one and a half speed, and I think I'd have to listen to this one at normal speed. Um, <laughs> but that's a good thing. We're, we're we're helping people learn, and I really appreciate your time. So, if people wanted to um, follow your lab or continue learning more about about you and the work that you do, where where can people find you online? Uh, well, on Facebook, there's there's a page and there's a group uh, that have roughly the same name. Uh, one is the Canid uh, and Reptile Behavior and Olfaction Team, and the other one is Canid and Reptile Behavior and Olfaction Group, I think. Um, mm -hmm. One you just have to like, the other one you have to ask to get in, whatever, uh, so you're welcome to join that. Um, I'm on Facebook myself. You can join, although I think it's, I, I'm at the limit now, unfortunately, or very close. Um, uh, we are on Instagram, but it's not very interesting, interesting what's going on there. Same for yeah. Twitter. Uh, so, yeah, there's obviously email. There, there is actually my personal website that you can find on um, just by typing my name and Dalhousie University. I think it will come up. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, people are welcome to follow us and hopefully we can get out of this pandemic because honestly, this has been limiting uh, a lot our field work in the last year. Uh, yeah, so. We'll, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Anxious, I think we're anxious, all looking forward to that. Yeah, anxious to go back to the field big time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, hopefully that happens for you guys soon and um you know, soon and safely. I know I'm also keeping an eye on the border and I've been really, I've been trying to get up to Banff for years now. <laughs> you know, we'll see if it happens before I leave Montana. Yes. Um, so yeah, again, thank you so much for your time and um, we'll, uh, we'll be, we'll probably be in touch soon. <laughs> okay. No problem. Right. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Gadbois as much as I did. I know I um, I was taking notes and just my eyes were wide that whole conversation. He's just so, so intelligent. And again, I know that some of the stuff on like the D primes and the S pluses and that sort of thing can be a little confusing. So I'll drop notes into the show notes to make sure that everyone can look those up and stay, stay uh, present with the conversation, hopefully. Um, and I hope that you learned a lot and that you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Maybe play around with some signal detection theory. Again, you can always find those show notes and extra information on this episode at canineconservationists.org.